So Matthew chapter 24. And uh, actually, if, if you want to just even make sure you can see chapter 23, um, we'll begin there actually in our reading. But our passage for a sermon this morning will be in the first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 24. Let's begin in our reading today in Matthew 24 and verse number 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not see your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on Mount Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of, of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Thus says the word of God. May God bless the reading of his word among his people. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are transported back to the Mount of Olives there with the disciples this morning. In the Spirit of God, we ask that you would take the word of Christ and bring it to us in the same way in which you brought it to these, to these disciples. Bring to us the meaning. Bring to us the message. And bring to us the means to obey and to respond in the right way. But, oh Lord, we, we do not want to be hearers only. We want to be doers. So help us, Lord. Help us to hear and then help us to obey and to believe upon these words of life. We pray that you would quicken the spirit of us who are here today. Especially, Father, we pray that, that there might be someone listening today who has not yet heard the voice of Christ in their heart. Oh Lord, just take the hands off their ears and let them hear the voice of grace. And let them hear of Christ. Let them hear the sweet sound of His saving voice. And let their hearts melt in contrition this morning, calling upon Him for their salvation. 
for those who hear this word this morning, long that all who would hear of Christ would know of him too. Let the gospel be preached among all the nations beginning today, even here in this room. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Christ the Temple. Christ the Temple. There's a lot of thoughts going on in the minds of the disciples at this time. Christ has just made quite a spectacle at the temple, hasn't he? For about a day and a half, he has chased the merchants out. He has healed countless lame. In fact, the lame are leaping. The blind are seeing and other diseases are being healed to the extent that there's no number recorded. And uh, he has held the religious leaders with their pomp and their arrogance at bay. He has taught the crowds while children were singing, Blessed be the name of God. And surely the disciples think that this, all of this exercise going around Jesus in the temple courtyard, they, they might think this, is, this has got to be some sort of reset of the temple. They had had maybe their, some, some of their suspicions about some of the hypocrisy and some of the emptiness perhaps of, of the temple worship for some time. They certainly have seen some of the, the arrogance of the religious leaders and maybe felt some of the coldness of, of Judaism during that time. And even though they were practicing their own worship in temple, there was probably some of it they just felt needed a reset. And maybe this is what Jesus is doing. But to hear Christ speak of the temple's destruction is something that they didn't have the capacity to understand. The temple had been the center of Jewish culture and religion for nearly 1,000 years by this time. 1,000 years. It really, it's, it's hard for us to compare any significant structure uh, or building that we think of in, in any era and age of time, but especially that's personal to us as 21st century American Christians it's hard for us to, to imagine. Really, nobody could imagine because I want to remind you that the temple wasn't just a building. It was the very presence of God amongst his people. It wasn't just a building of artifacts. It wasn't a, a Smithsonian. It wasn't a capital. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a monument. It was the very resting place of the very presence of God and a very holy and sacred place as holy as the throne room of God in heaven. It was very significant. And, and so you and I, we do not have the capacity to understand just how significant this is. And now you have heard, the disciples are hearing, this temple will be destroyed to the point at which not even one stone will lie upon one stone. Totally decimated. For them, for the, for the disciples and for the Jews, the temple was more than symbolic. It was the point of where God had done some amazing things. It was where God was receiving their worship, their sincere and biblical uh, worship. Their lambs were slain. Their priest was interceding. The prayers were ascending from the altar of incense. The fathers, as representative of their family, were laying hands on, on the lamb at least once a year and, and offering to the sacrifice as biblically was commanded. It was the source of the hope of the interaction of a faithful follower of God. It was the place where that follower could know that God would hear him. To know that God would bless him. And it was, it was the, the very presence of God's 
of God and His promise of protection, as long as the temple was standing, they knew God was with them. So what is this that the temple would be destroyed? It probably seemed outrageous for them to hear their rabbi say that the temple would be destroyed. It was just unthinkable. And certainly it was unthinkable that God would have any part in that. That God would destroy the temple. That there was some sort of attributing to God of the destruction of the temple. Why would God ever destroy the temple? Why would God ever allow the temple to be destroyed? And Jesus had said in verse number 36, I'm sorry, 38 of Matthew 23, see your house is left to you desolate. Jesus was speaking of, of the house of God. Not speaking of their family, their home. Their house will be left desolate. Empty, void. And now he says, the temple will be destroyed. <clears throat> when the disciples left between chapter 22 and 23 with Jesus, the temple courtyard... They left Jerusalem proper and, and went down the sweeping valley outside of the gates of Jerusalem and then ascended, so began to ascend the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. As they were in their descent out of Jerusalem, they would, they would more than symbolically, they would, yes, even geographically, look upon the greatness of the temple. There likely the sun was shimmering off of the gold-laden temple Jerusalem or Israel had prided itself on this rebuilding of the temple and Herod had added the wealth of the Roman Empire as, as frosting all over this temple said it was glistening as the sun would, would radiate off of this. It was quite a spectacle. It was, it was or should have been one of the, the, the seven wonders of the ancient world by any attestation, by any historian's evaluation the temple was was a gorgeous structure to behold it was grandiose and it signified god's blessing on his people and as long as that temple stood no matter the roman occupation no matter the roman oppression over god's people as long as that temple stood almighty and beautiful so they had their promise of god's presence and as they left Jerusalem with Jesus leaving the temple that day, their eyes were cast upon the grandiose of this temple. And he says in chapter 24, verse 1, they were going away and the disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Jesus, do you look and see this? What a sight. Do you see the sun setting? I don't know what time of day it was. Do you see this it was just a gorgeous sight. Have you ever seen anything more beautiful than this Jesus? They say to him. And he says, there is coming a time when you won't see this anymore. The temple structure was quite large and there's a picture here. This is a, sort of a, a remaking, an imaginative making, but knowing of the dimensions and things that we would know. 
uh, of what it possibly looked like, but but we do know some some things about the dimensions and the temple proper. That is that that building in the center that you see there. The stones that built this center structure, okay, where the holy of holy was was and the inner court was. The stones were made cut out of limestone and probably from some distance away. These stones that 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 were on this with twelve feet. By 12 feet, let me start with the dimensions again, they were 40 feet long. Okay, as long as a school bus. 12 feet wide and 12 feet tall, one stone. They weighed, one stone weighed hundreds of tons. One stone. If if you want to think about it this way, I heard it this week illustrated this way: fifty school buses of weight, fifty school buses of weight for one stone. And Jesus says, not one stone will rest upon one stone, not even by accident. You won't even be able to recognize that there was a temple here soon. God's judgment was impending and Jesus had been really uh, unfolding and and unscrolling the judgments. He has been declaring, remember in chapter 23, seven woes unto the religious leaders and to the Pharisees. Seven woes. His judgment is rolling from the throne room of God towards Jerusalem and towards God's people and towards, essentially here, the temple. When God meets out judgment, there is nothing that can stand in its way, even even if it's a, a religious system, and even if it appears to be the religious system that God had put together, God will dismantle things that are empty. This morning I want us to look at two truths that I think, as Christ meets with His disciples now, as they go into the top of the Mount of Olives, and he discusses with them what they're to think about all these things as they ask him these questions. And number one, let Jesus correct your thinking. Let Jesus correct your thinking. You see, they had no room for this. They had no theology for this. They had no understanding for this. They had, they had no space, no imagination for this. What is God doing? They've never read Matthew 24 before. So what is God doing? Well, our response to this, first of all, needs to be, by the way, this message is an introduction to the next two chapters. There's all so much we're going to unpack. We're going to put together some things and take apart some things. And so this message is not meant to be comprehensive and it's meant to merely introduce some, some, some truths and maybe even some prophecy to you this morning. But it's, it's just a, really a matter of introduction. And we'll dig into this as the Lord with Terry in a later Sunday. On those lines, though, however, this message is a sort of a teeing up for what God will be doing in our preaching next Sunday as Pastor Golden preaches in beginning in the book of Habakkuk. And I invite you to to really take the theme from today and prayerfully carry it through and then read Habakkuk moving into next Sunday because it has everything to do with judgment and God's mercy. Let Jesus correct your thinking their thinking was that if, if the temple is destroyed, then that means that God's judgment on the world is finally going to happen. It, it must mean a culmination of things. It must mean God is something greater. And, and if God is something greater, then He's going to be setting up His kingdom. And that means that since we've been hanging out with Jesus, 
Surely it's time for us to sit on thrones. If the temple is destroyed and the world's going to be judged, then we're going to be reigning soon. So this, this begins to ignite some really great passion inside of the disciples' hearts. The time is coming. Yes, finally, we get to sit on thrones. Finally, we get to teach those Roman guards and soldiers and those haughty emperors, Herod and, and Caesar himself. Finally, we get to teach them lessons. Finally, we get to be greater than Babylon and greater than Persia and greater than Egypt and greater than Rome. Finally, our day is coming. And so then when they, the disciples hear this, their heart begins to, to drum with a, a faster beat. So they ask, when is this going to happen? I mean, I mean, this is exciting news. I mean, it's, it's a little bit, uh, throwing them off guard, throwing them off their game. The temple's gonna be destroyed, okay? We're, we're still with you. This must mean the kingdom's coming. So their natural question is, is, is when's it going to happen? And how will we know when, when it's gonna happen? There's nothing healthier, by the way, for the vitality of, of our faith in Christ than for us to submit our thinking to Jesus Christ. There's nothing healthier for you than to submit your thinking unto Jesus Christ. To deliberately surrender our thinking about what is, like what is going on, and the what ifs. You know, I, I, I really believe that, that uh, we, we hear some good teaching and some good encouragement, maybe even in our devotionals that we read daily, about worry, about the what ifs. But we also need to submit our what is to Christ. Our what is. What is the reality of your situation? The fact is that, that likely we, we have a great amount of agony in our situation about the what is as we do about the what ifs. The things that we can't change about our situation. And, and really it is, it, we need to deliberately surrender our thinking about the what is and the what ifs to Jesus Christ. Our thinking must be submitted to Jesus Christ. And here the disciples are learning this. And Matthew, by the way, is writing this some 30 years later, probably 20 to 30 years later. And he's writing this and he is, he is recalling the lesson of what it was to sit under Christ and to hear Christ shape thoughts shape the disciples' thinking. Our thinking should be submitted to Jesus Christ and our, our thinking should also be submitted to His teaching, to His teaching, to, to what He says is true and right and good. Our thinking needs to be submitted unto His teaching and essentially that's found in the Word of Christ in the Scriptures. Really, there's, uh, it's hard to divide out the three that we have here. But we keep that person, Jesus Christ, there in this list of, of, of who we submit to because we're, we're not working about this dry religion. We're not, we're not going about a routine of submission. This is a personal submission. Jesus Christ. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. There is nowhere in our thinking that is more important to submit to Christ than our thinking about the future, including the end times. It's not surprising that the disciples believe that Jesus is setting up his kingdom, including the imminent judgment upon Israel, which they believe could be at hand. Christ has declared that this generation will be held accountable. He says, I, I've, I'm holding you accountable um, in, in chapter 23 um, for all of the things that I've been sharing with you. And so he's holding them accountable for their rejection of the Messiah. 
And, um, and he says that his return is going to be met with great praises. At the end of chapter 23, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When I come back, this is what's going to, going to be happening. So the disciples are thinking, this is great. He's going to reveal himself. He's going to, he's going to really kind of throw off his, his robes. He's going to flex. He's going to go in and chase Pilate out and Herod and Caesar. He's going to do all these things. And finally, this generation is going to know. Finally, everybody is going to say, blessed be the name of, of the Lord. It would seem impossible to the disciples that so great a temple would be destroyed. It would have to be that God would be revealing something greater. It would be a sight to behold. To the disciples and the Jews, they found this to be a place of God's favor. It meant access to God. It meant the way in which they were prescribed to worship to God. It was their security blanket and it was a biblical one. But now they have God with them. They have the Emmanuel. What is, what is your security blanket? What brings you security? What brings you peace of mind? What are some things in your life that bring you security? What are some things that bring you your identity Maybe they are even good things, and maybe they're even sacred things. Things that you have plowed through and made ruts in in your, in your, um, in your way in which you relate to God, and in the way in which maybe even church is done, in the way in which formal worship is, is operated out. What are some, some things that just make you feel good, like it's done right, but it's it's not quite God Himself. This is some of what the disciples had been thinking. The temple, its presence, its beauty, its splendor, its longevity was all speaking to them of they're okay. The fact is the disciples found more security that the, that the temple was standing than that Jesus was with them. What is it that you could fill in the blank there as you ask yourself this question? I take more security in blank than that Jesus is with me. Christ has revealed to us His realistic expectations and Jesus unfolds these expectations. And when Jesus says, says to you and I, take up your cross and follow Him, He knows that it will go against every rut that's carved into our thought life. He knows that living for Him at times will seem counterintuitive. It will seem insecure. It will seem stone upon stone, but not no stone upon stone. Jesus, His intent isn't to surprise us, although at times God works in surprising ways. His intent isn't to just surprise you. His intent is to save you. And to save you from yourself. And to save you from, listen, to save you from your temple. As long as the temple's standing, it's going to be okay. Nah, Jesus... I mean, He's with us. But as long as I can see that temple, Jesus, do you, do you see 
this temple in my life? Do you see the things, the props, the pillars, the foundations in my life? Do you see the things that I've put together? No, they're, and they're good things. They glisten in the sun. Jesus, look at all of what I've done. What is your temple? The effect of suffering upon our thinking will need in every will need every bit of submission to Christ in order for the Christian to live a healthy Christian life. It's usually God's way that when we've set a temple for God to behold, that God brings suffering so we can behold Him instead. The way in which which God desires to work in a believer's heart is to remove everything, even if it looks like the temple itself. And when He does suffering, is how He does so. So that we can worship Him and not the temple. So the effect of suffering upon our thinking will need every bit of submission, even the suffering itself needs to be submitted to Jesus Christ in order for us to live a healthy Christian life. So let Jesus correct your thinking. And number two, let Jesus prepare you for suffering before triumph. Let Jesus prepare you for suffering before triumph. It's not time yet for us as disciples of Christ to triumph We may have victories in this life. Certainly, our desire is to daily have victory over sin. And our desire is to make progress with the advance of the gospel witness in this world, seeing victory of overcomers, of people becoming overcomers, that is, people becoming children of God. And we may find even moral victories and triumphs in this world. But Christian, we know that it isn't time for our triumph yet. And Jesus seems to remind the disciples this. It's not time yet for triumph. And by the way, I believe firstly this this is directed, this this thought and this truth is directed. Jesus isn't going to triumph yet either. Not not yet, not in Matthew twenty four yet. Why? Because there's still sin that needs to be atoned for. Why why are we not triumphing? Because there's still work that God needs to do in our lives through Christ. We've grown too accustomed to having marked achievements in our life. We've adopted too much of the world's mindset in our Christian thinking and and even in our Christian church of thinking if we can just reach some sort of plateau, whether it's a personal achievement or spiritual success, that's a marker, that's a milestone. We've grown too accustomed to triumphant thinking as believers. That our triumph will be found in this moment or in this world or in this age. We've come to believe a false sense of entitlement in our walk with Christ. We sing differently than we serve. We sing it well. We sing it as well with my soul. But when we serve, we recoil. When to serve God means deep inward pain and sacrifice. When when we serve, we look for the trophy. 
God doesn't bring it. We have deep inward pain and sacrifice. It's not time for us to reign. It's not time for us to reign, brother, sister. It's not time for us to reign. It isn't time for us to live in glory yet. It isn't time for us to be done. And I say that with all my heart, especially to the saints who go before me, who you have walked with the Lord longer than me, and you, you have lost, walked on this earth longer than me. I say, don't be done yet. I plead as a younger brother and, and plead for the younger saints, go before us and don't be done. It's not time to reign yet. Continue and press toward the mark for the prize of the calling of God in Christ Jesus and show us the path. It's not time to reign yet. During this time, it will be extremely difficult for those who will live godly. Outward forces of the world, powerful attacks from the devil, and and yes, even the inward battle against our, our indwelling sin that is our flesh that still remains, are working against us in, as Christians in this age. And the counsel that Christ gives these, these disciples is for every believer living between His first arrival and His second coming. This counsel that Jesus gives in the next few verses is for every believer. It's for us this morning, surely. It's not ours to sketch out our royal robes and to get our sizes in for the crowns we will wear. It's not ours yet. It's not time to celebrate yet. The triumph hasn't happened. It's coming, but we're, we're commanded to prepare for it. Christ will prepare us for that day and we're able to prepare and be ready for what is ours today. What is ours today is not triumph, but what is ours today is opposition. It sounds like really a bad news, but it's just realistic. That Christ is trying to be real with you. To follow Him will be hard. And it will be increasingly hard. If you're living in truth today, if you're living in the reality of now, your life is getting harder. No matter that you're growing in Christ and growing in the grace and knowledge of, of, of Jesus Christ, the opposition is growing stiffer and sin is becoming more acute in your life and, and, and you're longing for the consummation of things to be ended in that final hope and display of the glory of Jesus Christ. All of this swells for the believer, the world is getting harder to live in because our love for Jesus is growing warmer. And that ought to be true of you. But it's just realistic that Jesus gives us counsel that this opposition is growing with increasing fervor. The signs that are given in verses 4 through 12 tell us that the end isn't here yet. There's a long way to go. Or at least there's some sort of time left to go, we might say. We aren't at the end yet. Part two of the, was the sign question. Jesus wasn't going to talk about the times. He was just going to talk about the signs at first. So in fact, verses 4 through 12 are the things that the disciples went through and that we are going to go through, perhaps in cycles. I believe verses 4 through 12 is somewhat representing some a cycle when hasn't there been nations rising against nations and famines and earthquakes and natural disasters? 
It does seem that as time rolls forward that, that they grow with intensity and with frequency, but it does seem that there's some sort of a cyclical nature to them. For those who point to these things and say that the end is here because of these signs, that it's exactly what Jesus is saying not to do. Don't look at these things. Don't look at the earthquakes and the nation rising and nation and say, we're living at the end times. In fact, because these signs are present, you can know that the end is not here, is what Jesus is saying. He's warning against this type of thinking. He's stealing us for battle. He's giving us backbone. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. It's not over. It's difficult. But the gospel advance must still take place in the midst of this hardship. Put your hands to the plow and cultivate the earth with the seed of the gospel. There's more to be received into the kingdom. Verse number 8. Now we're going to walk through these verses. Verse number 8. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains says that when these things are happening, remember that it's only the beginning and not the end. So as we see these signs around us, we know that the doors to the kingdom are still wide open for sinners. The grace of God is still available for those who will believe. And he goes on and he warns Christians against deception. He says, don't be deceived. He says in verse number 11, the false prophets will rise and lead many astray. Don't be deceived. There's some who will even say, I am the Christ. Don't be distracted even if someone says they're they're the Messiah Himself. They are God. And by the way, it is unfathomable to think of anybody who would say that. But do you know that it seems every day we're hearing people say something on the news that we we just cannot imagine anybody have ever said before. And the time is coming. And it's, by the way, there have been many who have already said I am the Christ. But you're going to hear more and the signs are like this. As Jesus rolls now the counsel to, to the disciples, He sort of illustrates it this way. Ha, have you ever been on a trip where you didn't have GPS? Do you remember those days? When you had to pull over the side of the road and you had to ask the locals some directions. Do you remember that? It was only like 10 years ago, but it seems like a lifetime ago. And our young people don't know what that means to live like that. And that's fine. But remember, you were going somewhere and you didn't know exactly where it was you were going. You didn't know the longitude and latitude. You didn't know the exact minutes of how long it would take. You didn't know if there was a traffic jam on the way. You didn't know any of those things. You didn't have a topographical map of the area telling you you're going to take a a swerve around the hill and go up and down. You didn't know know there was a policeman in 1.5 miles and there was a car pulled over on the side of the road and there was a McDonald's that was rated with a four star instead of a five at the next exit. You had to trust the local. And you roll down your window. And uh, he gives instructions. And he says, go down this road and just head east. And, and you'll go to a stop sign. And, and so take a left and, and watch for like Johnson's farm. It's, you'll still see a red barn after a ways. And that's not it, but you'll see well, um, on, 
on the right side, way back, you're going to see a hill and it's going to wind around and there's going to be some turns. Keep going until you get to the blinking red light. And that's important. When you get to the blinking red light, stop. And uh, take the street there on your right. It's called Washington Street. And go down Washington Street and look for this third left. And that's going to be Main Street. The stop of the red light, get, make sure you get in the left lane. And then be careful because there's been a lot of accidents there. It's a big intersection. And take a left and go down Main Street. And on the second right, you're going to see Jefferson Avenue. And go down Jefferson Avenue, you're going to see Tom's Hardware. And uh, you're going to see the road bend a little bit. You're going to go over some, some railroad tracks. And, and then you're going to see the third building just after the railroad tracks on the right, Jefferson. You're going to see a sign right there. It says, park right here, park in the front. What happened there? Well, at first, his instructions were really kind of general, weren't they? Go east, pass that one barn. Go down the hill, wind around, come to a blinking red light, and take a right on Washington Street. And follow Washington Street three streets until you come to the red light, get in the left lane, and turn left on the main street. Do you hear how detailed that got? Was it detailed at the beginning? No, not really. You wished it were back then, don't you remember? Did I pass it? You're going way too far. He said it was just a short while. And you've gone, you know, half a mile. You feel like it's been like 10 miles. You're panicking. Did I miss the red barn, the Johnson's farm? And so you keep going. And so you got two parts of the directions, don't you? You get a very general one at the beginning with landmarks. But then you get very specific instructions when you get closer. That's how I'd like to suggest to you that Matthew 24 is laid out, especially here as we begin. There's some very general things. Earthquakes. Nations rising against nation. Famines. And... There's going to get a little bit more specific things. You're going to hear some more false prophets and there's going to be some persecution of the Christians and some things. All this starts getting a little bit more specific. But up to 14, I think we're still in the general area. Things. In verse number 9, he indicates that there will be a time in which Disciples of Christ, and these disciples specifically, but believers, will be put to death. They'll go through tribulation. Verse number 10, there will be some who had walked with us, like John said in 1 John 4. There will be some who walked with us, who sat in our church, who said they were Christians, who don't walk with us anymore. And they have given in to the false prophets. They will betray you and betray one another. They were never a child of God. Things got hard. 
and God wasn't inside of them to preserve them. They were merely relying upon their flesh, their own will, to do right. And so they'll appear to be genuine believers. They didn't lose their salvation because they never had it. In verse 11, there'll be false prophets that arise. And by the way, notice, there are false prophets that will arise and they will arise within those who will hear them. They may even arise from within uh, churches. That's where they'll, where they'll get their trust from. And they'll lead many astray. And these, they will appear to be pious. They'll appear to know all the answers, but they'll lead many astray. In verse number 13, verse number 13, despite all this, those who endure will be faithful to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. What do all these things have in common from what we've listed? All of these maybe general things have in common a little bit more specific towards the end, but just still general categories of things. When hasn't there been false teachers? When hasn't there been deception? When hasn't there been persecution of Christians? All these things. But what do all these things have in common? False messiahs and rising warring nations and famines and horrible weather. All of these things have in common is they're all out of control. They're all out of our control. Boy, hasn't the last two years reminded us that we just don't have any control? And do you almost, I feel it, but do you almost feel like now that we're through COVID that we're trying to get control back again? What are we doing? We've, we're starting to feel like we can steer things and control things. Isn't that where we were two years ago, haven't we learned? We're not in control. But Christ is giving instruction here and he's telling his disciples, like a local, just keep going straight. Just keep going straight. You're going to see some things along the way. Kingdom citizens, we know that this isn't all there is. Make disciples. Endure and, and look for hope to come. But the birthing isn't happening yet. The baby's getting into position, but the contractions aren't happening. The things are moving along and God's getting everything all set, but it's not yet. This first part, verses 1 through 14, just describes the things that are going to happen that aren't very specific. It's all the stuff before you get into the town. It's God in His providence repositioning things for the culminating series of events that are very specific to God's judgment. God's shifting things around by His sovereignty right now. Doing everything. Doing everything He wants to do to get things ready. So Christ's counsel to the disciples is threefold. Number one, love. Love others. Certainly love God as we had talked about. Love God and love others. And love the truth. Notice in verse number 12, the fault. <clears throat> the lawlessness will be increased, 
the love of many will grow cold. Do you know why the lawlessness increases? Because the love grows cold. Oh, we have a world that says they love one another. We have a world that wants to to fill the mall in Washington, D.C. with posters that say all kinds of things about love. We have a world that thinks they know what love is. But they don't love what's true. They don't truly love one another. And this is the downfalling of society and this is really the debacle of the lawlessness. The reason why they're lawless is because they're loveless. And by the way, the reason why you may find yourself rebelling against God's law or even offending another person or breaking laws, the reason why is because you're loveless. You're lawless because you're loveless. And our world is increasingly lawless because it's increasingly loveless. But this will be the marked distinction of believers. We're able to love because the love isn't from us to begin with. It isn't dependent upon our fickle emotions or our feelings. We're able to love because we're channels of a perfect love through truth to other people who don't deserve the love to begin with. We know that. And so Christ tells His disciples this, that the, the false religion is marked by a lack of love for God, which, which transmits to a lack of love for the neighbor. This wickedness is an increasing disregard for God's law. It isn't just lawlessness like breaking the code or the law of the land. It's, it's the lawlessness of transgressing God's law. It's an, it's an aggressiveness. It's, a, it's an unashamed rebelliousness of the heart. Rather than hiding sins, it, it flaunts its lawlessness. It's proud about its lawlessness. It puts its lawlessness on display. It's what Paul describes in 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. through But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. Hear that? Lovers of self. That would lead them to lawlessness. Lovers of money. But not lovers of God, not lovers of others, but lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, Paul tells Timothy. And so love... And the idea is that the fire of God has grown cold in them. They are spiritually cold. Secondly, endure. Endure. Verse number 13. Christ says, The one who endures to the end will be saved. Endure to the end of your life. Endure hostility and persecution. But by the way, it it will not be your endurance that saves you. While this is a command, it's also a capacity. It's also a promise. The believer's endurance, we know, is a spirit-empowered result or proof that he's a believer. The endurance is the evidence. The endurance is the evidence. None of the deceptions of the false teachers and the false prophets, none of the distractions cause the true believer to renounce Christ. He will protect them. He will present all of those who have entrusted themselves unto Him blameless, on that day, Jude 24. 
Endurance is a mark of true confession. You say, I don't know if I have what it takes to endure. You don't. You don't have to try to endure. You will endure if you're a child of God. Endurance is a mark of true confession. Those who genuinely are converted to Jesus Christ don't depart from the faith. By the way, I have a host of scripture if you're taking notes that I'd like to give to you regarding the endurance, we would say the perseverance or the preservation of the believer. Let me give them to you. A lot of them in Hebrews. So Hebrews 2, 1 through 3, 3, 14, 4, 14, 6, 11 and 12, 10, 39, 12, 14, and others, other places, James 1, 2 and 4, 2 through 4, John 8, 31, and 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Endurance gives evidence. You say, for me, endurance might look more like me just crumpling up and giving up and recoiling and throwing a, a pity party. We understand all those things. We're not talking about your emotional state. But when you hide in God, He's faithful to hold on to you. When your faith fails, He holds you fast. Um, Thirdly, Harold, verse number 14. That the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Unprecedented declaration of the gospel to a degree that man has never seen. Despite the attempts and the confusion of the time, despite the chaos of both nature and kingdoms, despite the nature and chaos of the churches, the gospel runs. God is merciful to continue to clearly call people to Himself from every tribe and nation and every tongue. This confusion, this chaos, the conditions of our planet, they don't stand in the way of our almighty saving Savior. Listen, nothing has ever stood in the way of Jesus saving a soul who cries out to Him. And so, love, endure, herald. All three. Commit yourself to them. And trust these energies to God. And watch as His kingdom grows. Let's pray.